1: ladies and gentlemen joy and fun and laughter and just exuberance should be just vomiting out of you because today is friday it's friday hey 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 gonna sing this song about friday it's friday i'm gonna sing this song i'm gonna sing this song all day long i'm gonna sing this song far and wide i'm gonna sing this song with the coke on my side i don't know what i'm doing there I don't know. I mean, sometimes you got to tell me to stop because I'll just keep going. I'll just keep doing it. So there's another reason why today is special. Today is Friday, October the 4th. Tomorrow is Saturday, October the 5th. Why is that such a big deal? Well, tomorrow we will be celebrating the 50th birthday, the 50th anniversary of the airing of the very first episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus. I'm pausing because I'm expecting you all to be joyously being, you know, exuberant. Exuberating joyously. That's, that's what I'm expecting. I'm expecting you all to be exuberating in a joyous way. I often, I love making up words. It's fun. I don't know. Exuberating might be a real word for all I know. Probably not. I don't know. I I can't look it up right now. So yeah, 50 years. Now, 30 years ago today on October 4th, one of those members of Monty Python passed away the day before their 20th anniversary. Another member of Monty Python, John Cleese, called it the uh, worst case of party pooping he'd ever heard of. So what I have always done in the past and what I'm going to try to do today and tomorrow is I take these two days and I do nothing but watch Monty Python. I watch the show, I watch the movies. If I'm in the car, I'm listening to the CDs. I take the time off of work and I just I just sit around and I do nothing. I just I just bathe myself in silliness from those wacky Monty Python guys, and uh, I haven't done it in a very long time, so. I'm looking forward to doing it today. But before I do any of that, I wanted to get this episode recorded and sent out to you. Uh, Behind the curtain, I'm going to pull open the curtain here to let you see the man behind the curtain. I'm not recording this the same day I released it. So, you know, just so you know, I'm just sorry to to spoil that for you. But what I want to do today with this episode, I don't know how long this sucker is going to be. But I want to just talk about Monty Python today. I didn't make any notes, didn't write anything down. I just figured I would sit here and talk about everything that I can think of when it comes to Monty Python's Flying Circus because I used to be just really up inside that whole world. There was a time, oh, 15, 16, 17 years ago, I ran a website called Pythonland, and it was all about Monty Python. And I read a lot, I've read a lot of books, and I've seen a lot of the documentaries, and I've spent a lot of time just immersing myself in that world. And a lot of it I still remember. For example, let's, let's just go with the basics here. So Monty Python is made up of six guys. You've got John Cleese. You've got Michael Palin, Eric Idle, Terry Gilliam, Terry Jones, and Graham Chapman. Now, I like to label all these guys. And the labels, I feel, are fairly universal. I think any Monty Python fan would agree with me. Michael Palin is the nice one. Eric Idle is the greedy one. Terry Jones is the Welsh one. John Cleese is the grumpy one. Terry Gilliam is the American one. And Graham Chapman would be the dead one. Now, five of these guys are from England. One of them is from America. America. The Eng- Terry Gilliam is the American. The rest of them are all from England. The guys from England before they got together and started making this show, John and Graham attended Cambridge University uh, with Eric Idle, Michael Palin, and Terry Jones attended Oxford. In each of their separate university experiences, they were members of their uh, schools' like comedy troop team type thing. I don't having never gone to college and most certainly never gone to a British college. I don't know. I don't know if that's standard across, you know, just universities in general, that there is some type of club in which you act and do comedy and write and and perform sketches. That's what these were. One of them, I think the Cambridge group even had their own hall. Where they could, it had a bar. It served alcohol. They could throw these these uh, parties and 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 people charge people to come in, and they would they would uh, do their performances. And uh, whereas the Oxford guys, they had to go rent a hall when they did their stuff. That's the way I understood it. In the meantime, Terry Gilliam, he's in America. I believe he grew up in Minnesota. I think he's a Minnesota guy, and he worked on. He he was really into the college uh, his school's, uh, newspaper magazine type thing. And he, he was a big fan of, of mad magazine. And he, 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 uh, he wanted to make something like that, that was satirical and funny and, uh, bucked convention, you know, that type of thing. Well, after the fellows all left university, they all individually started writing for this thing called the Frost Report, which was a, a show that David Frost did. Um, John Cleese would also act in some of the sketches on the Frost Report. He has probably—it's—it's it's funny when I when I run into people who have heard of Monty Python but really don't know anything about Monty Python. They always assume that John Cleese was Monty Python, and I have over the years have just stopped correcting people, uh, especially those folks that know more than I do, quote unquote. You know, the people that'll tell me, no, I'm pretty sure it was Michael Palin that died. And I just nod and smile and walk away. So John Cleese was probably, he's probably the most iconic. He's probably the most famous. Um, most people outside of the the Monty Python bubble assume that he is either a Monty Python or hes he was the leader. It was his group. And that's because he started... He started, the, he started getting in front of the cameras before the rest of them. Uh, Graham Chapman did a bit, and, and Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam, or Terry Jones and Eric Idle and Michael Palin, they did some too, um, but John Cleese was out there first. He did a lot more TV in front of the camera than the others. Eventually, Terry Jones, Eric Idle, and Michael Palin went off to do a show called um, Do Not Adjust Your Set. It was a children's program, and... It was kind it was a collection of sketches, but it also had this uh this band on there. I think they were called the Bonzo Doodah Band. Something like that. The Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. This see, my memory's failing me. But one of the guys in that group, his name was Neil Ennis, and he comes into the story later. He he was in he he helps them with some of their music. He was in uh the Holy Grail. He played um Brave Sir Robin, his minstrel that was Neil Innes. Um, Yeah, I'm gonna. This isn't gonna flow in any kind of necessary. Any any kind of. uh, This isn't gonna flow in any kind of real order. This is just off the top of my head, so I'm just I'm just spitting it out there. So John Cleese and Graham Chapman, they they were writing partners. They would work together. They would write stuff for for whatever various TV shows that they were working on at the time, and they would stop writing. They would take a break. Whenever "Do Not Adjust Your Set" would come on, because they thought it was really funny, and though it was a children's program, adults across the country apparently really liked it. Uh, so, at one point, I guess John and Graham thought that they might want to work with uh, the the Terry, Mike, and Eric. And I think it was John that approached Michael, um, because really, when it comes for my tastes. Michael Palin is the most talented of all of them. He's my favorite. My daughter is named Palin. That's not a coincidence. And so they got together and they said, well let's let's do a show together." And somehow, Terry Gilliam enters into all this at some point while he was he was back in America and he was working for a magazine called Help. John Cleese, and I think it was with his cambridge um troupe there they they were doing a review that toured, and they came to New York. And Terry Gilliam had gone to see them perform. And he thought that John Cleese was very funny and thought he could pull great faces. And so he hired him to take part in this. Uh, they called it Fumetti. I believe that's the word. Now I can't remember. I think it's Fumetti. Basically, it's a comic book with photographs. So you take the photographs of the person doing these things. And then you put word bubbles over the photographs. And they, he did this story. Where John Cleese plays a guy that falls in love with his daughter's Barbie doll, and so that's how they meet. So after Terry Gilliam graduates college, he wants to he wants to get into the he wants to get into the show business. He wants to write, and so he uh, somehow winds up in England, and he gets a hold gets a hold of John Cleese, and and uh, John Cleese gets him in touch with somebody else, and then they get him in touch with the 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 guys doing "Do Not Adjust Your Set." And he doesn't do a lot of writing there, but he starts doing this animation. So Terry Gilliam, he's the animator. He, he, he's what brings really Monty Python's Flying Circus. He brings them their unique look because he would do these little cartoons that involved a lot of cutting out of things out of um, classic artwork uh, or magazines and stuff. And he would he would make them move across the screen. And so he gets in touch with these guys. He shows them some of his stuff. They hire him for the show, and uh, then he comes along when they do Monty Python's Flying Circus. So before they had any concept of what they wanted to do, they went and met with the 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 big guy at the BBC that makes all the decisions. The guy that decides who and who's going to have a show and who's not. And so the six of them go into this guy's office, and the guy starts asking them questions and goes, "Okay, so you want to do a show?" Um, do you have a name? And they kind of look at each other. No, no, we don't. We, we haven't, we haven't come up with a name yet. Okay. Well, what, what kind of show are you going to want to do? Is it going to be a variety show? Uh, we, I, we really haven't, we really haven't given it much thought. Will there be com? Is it going to be sketches? Yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah. There's going to be sketches. Will there be musical acts? Um, I don't know. Probably not. Um, we really haven't, we really haven't discussed that quite yet. Will you be doing any, anything on film? Um, Maybe that probably that might happen. And then the guy just kind of says, all right, well, I'm going to give you 13 episodes, but that's it. And that's, you know, that's something that would never happen today. There's so many, you know, hoops and hurdles that you got to jump through just to see somebody. And for these, these six guys who granted they were known, they weren't famous, but they were known. They, they had a resume behind them. This guy had enough trust in them based on what they've done before that he just gives them 13 shows. And that's the way they do it in England. They don't do seasons. They do series. So they did the first series, which was 13 episodes. Then they did a second series, which was, I believe, also 13 episodes. They did a third series and John Cleese was kind of, I don't know if I want to do this third series, but he did it anyway. And they, they did 13 episodes of that. And then when they did a fourth series, John Cleese said, I, I don't want to do it anymore. And again, by this point, John Cleese had been in front of the camera much longer than the other guys. And he has gone on record many times to say that he felt by that point they were repeating themselves a lot. He didn't think they were being as original as they used to be. And he was just kind of tired of it. And so he, he left the group. And they decided to go on with the fourth series, but they only did, I think it was six episodes. There's 45 episodes in total of Monty Python's Flying Circus. And when you think about that for a second, you think about stuff that's on TV nowadays, um, some of the big shows that everybody's always going to remember Friends, The Office, you know, shows like that. And you think of how many episodes there are. And then you think about, a lot of these, a lot of people that do comedy these days, they will still say, well, you know, Monty Python was a big influence of mine. And then you go and look and they've got 45 episodes. I mean, that's a lot. That, that was a lot for back then. But looking at it now where, where people are doing 200, 300, 400 episodes, it's like 45? Really? And these guys are a big influence? Yes. 45 episodes. Um, not a stinker in the bunch. There are some, there are some episodes that I, I don't, I don't enjoy certain areas. I just, it's like, all right, yeah, that's funny. But every episode, good episode. Um, so let's talk about the show for just a little bit. I just want to, I want to mention my favorite sketch of all. It's called the fish slapping dance. There is no dialogue in the sketch. Um, it's a very silly pointless sketch. And I think most people will tell you that the fish slapping dance is their favorite. I'm going to put a link to the video in the show notes because I feel like everybody in the world, if they haven't seen it, they need to watch it at least once. Um, some of my other favorite sketches are the argument clinic. Uh, the parrot sketch is a classic. Um, there's a really good episode called the cycling tour. And I think it was in their third series and it's like the the only episode that tells a story from beginning to end. And Michael Palin is the guy named Mr Pither who is taking a cycling tour. He's on a bike. He's taking a cycling tour of North Cornwall and he ends up in Russia somehow. It's 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 pretty funny. They have another one that's kind of almost close to a to a complete story in one episode and that's they do a sketch called the sci-fi sketch that lasts most of the episode about aliens that look like Blamanges that come down and turn everybody into turn all of England into Scotsmen so that they can win Wimbledon because apparently the Scottish are not known to be good tennis players, so if the entire country are Scotsmen, then the Blamanges can play tennis against them and win because the Scotsmen are not good tennis players that that I have a, a fond memory of that um. Arthur Touched Jackson, some of the some of the original ones, The Man with Three Buttocks, um, The Piranha Brothers is a great sketch. It's just a it's like a, a documentary about these two gangsters, uh, the Piranha Brothers, and the, the the terror they caused in England. There's a really good um, kind of news program, news magazine type sketch about what they call the mouse problem, which is young men. Dressing up as mice—that's really funny. It's 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 handled as if you know these are, are men who have become homosexuals, and it's a problem that they have to deal with. Or men, uh, peop, you know, teenagers uh, experimenting in drug with with drugs and whatnot. And it's you know, it's like the society, the societal uh, issue. That's cropping up that that the young people are just flocking towards, and it's dressing up as mice, going to parties, dressing up as mice, eating cheese. It's really silly. It's really it's really funny. There's the the upper class twit of the year. That's pretty funny. Um, Olympic hide and seek, which is an Olympic event that lasts years because you have two contestants, the guy that hides has, you know, the guy that's finding, he covers his eyes and he counts to 100. The guy that's hiding can literally hide anywhere on Earth. So he has 100 seconds to to, to jump in a cab, to go to the airport, to jump on a plane, to go somewhere and hide. And it's so funny. It's, 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 it's a really funny sketch. Um, now, beyond the TV shows, they did their movies. Uh, Monty Python and the Quest for the Holy Grail is probably their most famous. I think anybody who knows anything about Monty Python, most people you'll find have seen the Holy Grail, if not the entire movie, bits and pieces of it. Uh, Beyond that, there's uh, The Life of Brian and The Meaning of Life. But before all three of those, there was a movie called And Now for Something Completely Different. That was something that they used to do in the show to tie sketches together. Because the whole point of the show was the sketches wouldn't necessarily end. They didn't like the idea of writing punchlines. They thought with sketch comedy, you'd watch a sketch that's on TV and the sketch would be so funny. And most of it, the funniest parts were during the sketch that were leading up to what is supposed to be the punchline which always always fell kind of flat. And so they didn't they they tried not to do punchlines. They they would uh one sketch would lead into another, and a lot of the ways they would tie tie things together and let it flow kind of a stream of consciousness type thing was Terry Gilliam's animation. But another thing they would do is they would have John they would just cut to John Cleese sitting at a desk in a suit and tie and they'd have the desk in an alley or out in the forest or just wherever. And he would say, he would look at, he would be on the phone or something and he'd hang up and he'd look at the camera and he'd say, and now for something completely different. And then they would do something else, which is brilliant. And uh, so they had this, th- this movie called, uh, and now for something completely different. And it was just a film version of a lot of their sketches. So basically take one of their episodes and uh, take like all the best sketches from the first season, basically, and create a super mega episode out of it. That's about ninety minutes long, and it's on film. That's what and now for something completely different was, and it was funded by, if not Hugh Hefner, basically it was the one of the guys that ran the Playboy Club in London really liked Monty Python, and he helped he helped get this movie made. Um, which is really one of the problems with the monty python movies it's the reason why you can't go out and buy a box set each movie was made by different movie companies life of brian for example um so they write this movie that is about a guy named brian who is born literally three to four doors away from jesus christ and uh it follows this guy's life and he is mistaken for the messiah and it's it's uh it has a lot to say about the church. It doesn't have a lot to really say about the about religion in general, but it's more making fun of the church. And so a lot of people were really upset by this movie. And I guess the 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 movie studio that was that was gonna put it out, at one point the head of the movie studio, as they were getting any everything ready to go and they were ready to start filming, they'd done all this pre production and everything. The head of the studio gets a hold of this script and he goes, Whoa, we can't make this movie. This movie's making fun of Jesus, and it doesn't. Never in the movie do they make fun of Jesus at all. And so he says, nope, we're not doing this. And the Pythons ended up having to take the studio to court because they'd spent a lot of money. They'd made the, the arrangements. They had a contract. They'd spent all this money in pre-production, so they had to take them to court. And then, But then they couldn't get this movie made, and in steps George Harrison from The Beatles, who was a huge Monty Python fan, And he puts up some of his money. He takes a loan out on his house. He gets a lot of other of his rock star friends to put the money together. He creates a film studio called Handmade Films, which I think is still making movies today just to make this movie, just simply because he wanted to see this movie get made. He wanted to watch the movie. That's how big of a fan George Harrison was. He just wanted to watch the movie. And none of the pythons, they knew that he was, he was, he was funding it. They knew that he was producing it basically, but they didn't understand that he was literally putting his house on the line to make this movie. They just assumed, well, he's a Beatle. He's got billions of dollars to just throw around. And while he did have a lot of money, he didn't have that kind of money just to throw around. He's millions and millions of dollars to throw into a film. So he had to put his, he had to mortgage his house or something. Life of Brian is probably my favorite. Of the four movies, Holy Grail, of course, is the classic. Life of Brian, I think, is the best one. However, my favorite moment from all four movies comes from The Meaning of Life, which is probably the least of all four movies. Uh, But there's a moment in which Michael Palin plays a drill sergeant, and he's got his group of soldiers, and he is screaming at them in the way a drill sergeant will. And he basically, he just wants them to march up and down the square that's what they're doing that's what they're going to do they're going to march up and down the square and uh, one guy raises his hand and you know he goes unless you got unless you have something else you'd rather be doing and one guy raises his hand and he says well uh, you know I I'd, I I'd, I'd kind of like to be off with the wife and kids and Michael Palin is just so upset and angry about this. And he gets in his face and he's like, oh, you'd rather be with the wife and kids. And it's like, well, yeah, I think I would. And he goes like, fine, go, go, go be with your kids. And then eventually everybody's like one guy's like, well, I've got a book I'd like to read. He's like, fine, you go read your book. And it's just it's probably one of the funniest Monty Python sketches ever. But it doesn't get called out enough because it's in the worst of the four movies. Now, they did a, a, a number of albums as well. They did a, um, there's an album called Matching Tie and Handkerchief, which uh, on record had three sides. And uh, it basically, it meant that one of the sides had two different sets of grooves. So, depending on where you put the needle, it would play side two or side three. And they thought they were pretty darn ingenious. They thought we're, this is something nobody else has ever done. But then they found out that uh, it had been done before. Um they did a, an album that's mainly all songs called the contractual obligation album which they made literally because they were contractually obligated to do a certain number of albums. They did an album that was basically just audio versions, they just recreated uh the sketches in a recording studio, so but some of the best ones though are just are brand new sketches that they wrote just for the album. And one of their best albums is actually the soundtrack to the Holy Grail. They did a soundtrack for each of their movies. And so when uh when the Holy Grail soundtrack, it's like they 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 had this opportunity to do this soundtrack for the Holy Grail and they just went all out. And while there is stuff from the movie in the soundtrack, there are brand new audio sketches in this soundtrack and some of them are just some of the best. And then life O'Brien came along and they were like, "Well, we'll, we'll put in a little e- We're not going to put in as much effort as we did" on the Holy Grail. And so they did the Life of Brian soundtrack. And basically it was just, all the new stuff is just Eric Idle and Graham Chapman. And Graham Chapman is like the voice guy who introduces the sketches. And Eric Idle is the guy in the booth. And so he's like the producer, the director. And uh, whenever Graham has questions or he gets something wrong, Eric Idle will come in and, and, and help him and fix it out. And then I don't really remember uh, the Life of, or the Meaning of Life soundtrack being anything other than, than just a collection of the sketches and audio. That's all I remember it being. Now, Monty Python has been a big part of my life since I was a teenager. Um, I don't remember how old I was when I first discovered Monty Python. I know my dad was watching the Holy Grail, whether he had rented the video or it happened to be on TV some night. I don't remember. I just remember walking into the room and he and and the the scene. There's a scene in the Holy Grail if you have not seen it, where two knights are fighting a black knight and a green knight, and the black knight ends up winning. And then Arthur, King Arthur, comes up and he wants to cross the black knight's bridge, but the black knight won't let him cross, and so they have to fight. And then Arthur cuts off his arm, and uh, the black knight's like, eh doesn't hurt and they keep fighting and he cuts off his other arm. And then he cuts off one of his legs and he cuts off his other leg. It is, it's, it's very violent, but hilarious at the same time. And so I walk into the room as my dad is watching this and the, the two knights are, are fighting at the beginning. And I'm like, Ooh, I love stuff like this knights with swords. And so I kind of just stop and I'm watching and my dad doesn't tell me to beat it. You know, my dad's not like, Hey, take off. You're not supposed to watch this. And, uh, the Black Knight kills the Green Knight in a very bloody way and I'm like, "Oh my goodness." And my dad starts laughing. And I thought, "Well, that's I guess that's funny, I guess." And then I end up sitting down and Arthur comes in and that whole thing goes on and he cuts off the Black Knight's arm. This, the, the the first arm that he cuts off and blood goes squirting out of the of the the arm socket. Psst. And my dad is just cracking up and I'm I'm realizing that yes, this is very funny. And uh, I remember, I, all I can remember, the first time I ever saw any Monty Python was that scene and then the scene where the Black Knights or the, the French Knights launched the cow over the castle wall, which was the funniest thing that my young mind had ever seen up to that point in my life. So then I discover that there's this show on PBS that they play after Benny Hill, which Benny Hill, I thought was, it was all right. It had uh, half-naked girls in it. That was kind of cool. But uh, I stuck around and started watching Monty Python and didn't watch a lot of it because it was on at weird times. And I could never – it wasn't like regular TV where I knew it's at Saturday at, on Saturday night at 7 a new episode of Monty Python would be on. And I didn't know that these were not new episodes. I didn't know that it had been airing on – on British TV for a few years. And it wasn't until just recently at that time that, that one of the, that a, a PBS station in Texas started airing the shows. And then then all the other PBS stations across the country started airing the shows. And that's how Monty Python got really big in America. I didn't know all that. I just knew it was a show on PBS. I didn't know what it was on. I would catch it every once in a while. I thought it was funny. But as I as I would continue through my school career, I would start watching. Uh, I I would rent Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I would rent Life of Brian. I would rent Meaning of Life. And um, and now for something completely different, there was a, a video store where you could rent videos that had some of the videotapes that had the episodes on them. So I would rent those. But my senior year in high school, a buddy of mine comes up to me and he says, "Hey." We should do forensics this year. If you're not sure what forensics is, it's not the art of crime scene investigation. It's also a, it's a, uh, it's like a, an acting competition team. It's, it's a, uh, you can do poetry or prose, or you can, two of you can team up to, to, to duet acting. You can do improvisation. And we did duet acting. So we got to pick a scene And act it out. You had like five minutes, five to seven minutes to do a scene. And uh, I was like, I'm not, I don't really act. I don't, that's not something I do. And he goes, we could do something for Monty Python. And I said, I'm in. And so we really wanted to do the Black Knight scene from Monty Python, but it's not that long. We, you have to be over a certain amount of time and you have to be under a certain amount of time. You have to, you have to hit, you know, you, you, you can't do any less than five minutes. You can't do any more than seven, something like that. Well, the Black Knight scene wasn't long enough, so we asked our the, the teacher that was in charge of forensics, we said, well, can we can we combine scenes from the Holy Grail and make it into one scene? And she said, sure. And I think nowadays, because my kids, Simon has gone through forensics, and I think the rules are different, but it was something that they allowed us to do then. And so we managed to combine, there's a scene in the movie called the constitutional peasant scene. In which Graham Chapman comes up, he's he's riding his fake horse along a road, and ahead of him is Michael Palin pulling a cart, and uh, he can only see him from behind. And the guy is wearing rags, and he says, "Old woman!" And Palin turns around, he says, "I'm a man," and that's that's actually not the line. I I could tell I could do the scene for you from from heart right now, but I'm not gonna. Anyway, we took that scene and we managed to combine it with the Black Knight scene. We go to our first meet and we win a gold medal. We never did that well the rest of the year, but we won a gold medal the first time out, which meant we could go to state and we didn't do all that well at state. Um, But then it wasn't until the following year I'd, I'd graduated. I had gone, it was, it was Christmas the year after I graduated. I'd gone with a friend into the big city, Kansas City, to buy Christmas presents for my family. And while we were there, we were in a record store and I found a Monty Python CD called The Final Ripoff. Now, this was before I had known about the movies at this point. I had known about the TV show, um, but I still really wasn't watching a lot of, I haven't seen, I hadn't seen all of the TV show. I'd only seen bits and pieces. Uh, but I find this CD, it's a double CD set called The Final Ripoff. I since learned, uh, you know, at some point after that, that it was a compilation of, of like, you know, is a best of, of their others, of their other other albums. And I go home that night and uh, everybody else is in bed. I'm living at home with my, with my parents. Everybody else is in bed. I get into bed. I put the CD in, I put my headphones on and this sketch comes up called the, uh, the fish license. And I am there. The argument clinic goes on there and the fish license sketch is on there. And I am trying so hard not to laugh as loudly as I want to laugh because everybody else in the house is asleep. But at the same time, I'm cursing myself because I'm thinking if only I had known more about Monty Python when I was in forensics, we could have done the argument clinic. We could have done the fish license. We could have done the parrot sketch. There was so much we could have done that I didn't realize was out there and available. And so that made me that made me happy and sad at the same time um but it was at that point that i really started actively seeking out everything i could find about monty python there was a uh, um one year comedy central got the rights to monty python and so they were going to air they were they were going to start airing all the episodes and to celebrate um on new year's eve they did a, a marathon where they played all of the episodes back to back now, granted, this is on Comedy Central. So there were commercials in there. And these shows were air, you know, originally made to air in England. And they didn't do commercials during the shows. I don't know if they did commercials at all. But so these shows were built to not have commercials in them. So you really break up the flow by putting commercials in. But I knew that they were going to air all the episodes. I hadn't up to that point. I don't think I had seen every episode. So I went out and bought a stack of videotapes. And I got my sleeping bag, and put the tape in the VCR. And the first, as soon as you know, two minutes before the first episode aired, I hit record, and then I just sat and watched. And I knew that those videotapes had six hours on them. And so as it got into uh, into evening, into nighttime, I would put in a tape before bed. I would lay down. I'd set my alarm for like five and a half hours. And the alarm would go off. I'd get up. I would uh, wait until the episode that was playing would end. take the tape out, put a new tape in, and I ended up taping every episode. And then I was able to watch them all. And man, I just studied these episodes. I would watch them all the time. I'd listen to the albums. I, I eventually got all the CDs. I even bought them on record. I mean, Monty Python has been a huge part of my life for decades. And I really don't think I would be the person I am today without Monty Python and the influence it had upon me. And as a you know, there there's a book out there, everything I learned, I learned from watching Monty Python. And a lot of their humor was intellectual. There there were there are times where something will come up in the news or or history or whatever about some member of a British government from back in the sixties and I'd go, oh I know that guy. He's from Monty Python sketch. And uh they weren't they weren't like uh, current political, they would mention some political figures every now and then. But that's the thing with Monty Python is that they weren't, they weren't timely. So you don't watch the sketches today and go, I don't, I don't understand that because they're talking about stuff that happened back in the '60s, and I don't, I wasn't alive back then. I don't remember any of it. It's it's timeless comedy. It really is, and it was such a huge part of my life. It made me who I am today, and it's why we celebrate the fourth and the fifth. Now, the fourth, again, it's the day that we lost Graham Chapman. But we don't – I don't spend the day mourning the loss of the man. I spend the day celebrating what he gave us while he was alive. And then tomorrow, Saturday, we'll celebrate just the fact that Monty Python uh, is out there and they're still doing their thing. They uh, A a few years back, they did a live show – mainly to make money because they got sued over something they had these court costs they had to pay so they they did this reunion show the series of reunion shows to to pay all their their legal defenses so hey I've been talking long enough I could probably talk for another half hour more uh, but I'm not gonna I'm just gonna go ahead and leave you with that Monty Python let's celebrate that those guys are out there let's celebrate what, what they've given to us 50 years 50 years of Monty Python It's an amazing thing. I'm sure we're going to see all kinds of fun stuff this month from the guys. Um, Unfortunately, most of it will probably be over in England. Hopefully, it'll find its way over here. But, uh, yeah, celebrate, folks. Plus, it's the end of the week. So I guess that means I'll see you on Monday. I'm out. Just another fanboy is a... All right, hold on, hold on. Hold it, hold it. Pull them horses back in, people. I'm not done. I said I was done, but I'm not done. I have to break back in here because I was, as I was editing this podcast, this episode, it dawned on me that I neglected to mention someone who is rather important in the entire history of the Pythons. And that is Carol Cleveland. She is considered by many, as well as the Pythons themselves, as the honorary seventh member. Of Monty Python. She, of course, was not one of the originals. She doesn't do any of the writing. She was brought in during the first season, the first series, to play the part of a sexy woman. Basically, when it came to uh, parts with women... Typically, the guys would just play those parts. They would dress up and drag because they didn't they'll they'll be the first to admit they don't know a lot about women. And uh, so the parts that they would write for women would be just like silly old ladies. And they would just play those parts themselves. But they had a sketch called the marriage counselor sketch. And uh, it had Michael Palin come in with his wife to the marriage counselor to get a bit of marriage counseling. And the, the marriage counselor was played by Eric Idle. And the problem that he was having with his wife is that she seemed to, to, to not pay much attention to him and that maybe she was stepping out on him. Well, his wife is played by Carol Cleveland, who is a very attractive woman. And right away, there is a connection between her and Eric Idle. And as Michael Palin's character is explaining what's going on, these other two are just ignoring him completely and they, they end up going back behind a screen to, uh, take off their clothes and do silly and do adult things. Um, all the while Michael Palin, who's playing a very weak-minded man, he gets kind of pushed out into the hallway while they do their thing. Um, so they needed a woman for that really to to work. and they bring in Carol Cleveland and then they they ended up using her a couple more times for parts like that. But eventually they realized, one of the things that they liked the most about her was that she got it. She had the same kind of humor that, that they had and she got what they were trying to do. A lot of people would come in at first and they didn't understand what, what it was that they were trying to do with this show, but she got it right away. And eventually she would go on to play many more parts. She was in the Holy Grail. Uh, she played, um, I can't remember their names. She played a Two twins. She played a set of twins in Castle Anthrax. It was Newt and something that started with a Z, something like that. Uh, she was also in Life of Brian and, of course, uh, Meaning of Life. She uh, one of her one of my favorite sketches that she's in is the uh, Scott of the Antarctic. It's a great sketch. She's she's super funny in it. She's very very funny in that sketch. She plays an American actress. Named Vanilla whore, and she is so funny. Um, she's in she's she's in a lot of sketches. They did have other women that would appear every now and then, but she is one of the honorary Pythons. Her and Neil Ennis, who I already mentioned earlier in the episode. But i I just i was i was listening back to the episode as I was editing it, and I know I had planned on talking about her. That was part of the plan. It was in my head to mention her because she is she is very important. Uh, and then it just kind of slipped out of my head while I was talking about other things. And I didn't want this episode to end without talking about Carol Cleveland because she is awesome. I think she was even, I'm pretty sure she was part of their reunion show too, that they did just a few years back. She went, she went on tour with them when they would go out and perform live. She would go with them. I mean, she was prac she was pretty much a member of the Flying Circus. She was she was one of them. And to not mention her would have been a crime. It would have been disrespectful. So Carol Cleveland, there you go. All right, now I'm done. Now we can finish the episode. The music's probably playing at this point underneath me. And pretty soon I'm going to say something that'll end the episode and then we'll just go. And that something is probably going to be something along the lines of me and my name being Steven. Stephen and how I'm just another fanboy, and then I'm going to ask y'all to be nice to each other. I'm out. Just Another Fanboy is a presentation of the Stephen or Else podcast. Questions and comments can be directed to feedback at stephenorelse.com. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash Orr and get instant access to the My Other Podcast podcast, a weekly show about whatever crawls its way into my tiny little mind just moments before I tap record. You can find me on the World Wide Web at StephenOrElse.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram by searching for at I also encourage you to subscribe to the show, leave us a five-star review, and share this episode with a friend. Just Another Fanboy is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can find that over at comicspodcasts.com. All links will be in the show notes. Bye bye, Daddy. Bye bye, Daddy. Good job. <laughs>